Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in this morning Parshat Acharemot because we are reading the first triennial uh, reading, the first third of every Parsha this year because we're reading on the triennial cycle with other Jewish communities who are doing the same. We're reading the first third of every portion. So that puts us this year uh, at the Avodah service, the ritual that was performed on Yom Kippur by the Kohen Gadol, by the high priest. So that means we're going to be at Leviticus chapter 16, the beginning of Parshat Acharemot. What does Acharemot mean? After the death. What death? Two sons. Nadav and Avihu. Yes? So we're about to get a description of what the high priest is to do on the huge big day of purifying the public space, the sancta. We're getting a description of that, and we're getting told it's immediately after the... To the deaths of Aharon's two sons. So why are these juxtaposed so carefully? For the rabbis, there's always a reason. This is not by accident that we get the description of this just after that. Now, of course, that's not what we just read, right? So this is saying after the deaths, right? So kind of going back. What, 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 why link? Why does Torah link this to Nadav and Avihu? Any theories? Uh, I, I, I did, had a reading about this, and, and it was so interesting, I thought, that it was saying something like, uh, if you intellectually know, keep your dog on a leash, for instance, or it, it might get hit by a car, um, that's knowing it intellectually. But it's a whole different thing if, God forbid, you're, you know, my dog, I don't have it on a leash, it gets hit by a car and it dies. I understand it at a whole different Level. You understand what at a whole different yeah, the level? The importance of following the rules, keeping my dog on a leash. You know, I find, you know, you could read on the side of cigarette smoking causes cigarette, you know, cancer. But if if your son died of smoking, you're, you know, you understand it differently. So here, his sons have died from not following exactly the rules. And because God didn't have to bring up, he a lot of times he just says, you know, Moses says, say this. But instead he is bringing up the death of his two sons. Why? To bring it home on a, on a very, very deep level. To don't, Aaron? Don't stay within, stay within these parameters. Look what happened to you. So son. who's bringing it up to? Well, Do God you think? is bringing it up to Moses to tell Aaron. You think it's for Aaron? I think... For people, you know, it depends how you're getting on the shot yet level, yes, but I think on other levels, it's for all of us. So I think it's to hit it home for sure. After the death of Fifi, God said, talk to Amy and tell her to keep that dog, her new dog, on a leash, right? So, right, the, the jarring, what happens when you don't? Observe the way it's supposed to go to keep everybody safe, this is what happens, right? So we're going to reference that when we talk about here's how to keep everybody safe, right? We're going to reference the accident. So the grim, horrible, bloody accident, absolutely. I think that it's placed there, not for Aaron per se, but for for the people, for the priests to understand this is not simply instructions that you might ought to would maybe on a good day follow, right? This is how it's got to go if everybody's going to be safe. I was just wondering, Nadav is a pretty popular name in Israel now. Why are people using, they don't seem like such great heroes. That, you know, they. I don't really think it's about referencing back to this Nadav. I think it's really about the meaning of Nadiv Lev, you know, the a, a voluntary heart. It's Nadiv, it's a gift. It's, you know, like it's got, people who speak Hebrew, when they hear Nadav, they're, he, they're hearing Nadivut, you know, like they're hearing all the good stuff, I really don't think they're naming after 
they, I mean, they know it's a biblical name, but I don't think they really think about because you're right, because then it's kind of grim, actually. It's actually, in the greater scenario, it's about life and death being dual partners. And if you look, I believe, at the whole Torah, this is what it's really about, life and death. That if you're going to affirm life, and you're going to enhance life, even, here are the rituals to do that. And that is completely juxtaposed against... What happens when we don't do that? Right, there are all kinds of deaths for us. Okay, so life and death. The God is explaining to Moses why he's saying uh, because they died when they being too close to the presence, and that's uh, what God wants to, to avoid in the future. So, that's so God, Reuben suggests that God is. God is wanting to avoid another situation of Nadav and Avihu, that God didn't want that to happen. So let's remember, that's a really good point, Reuben. Let's remember that when we want to assume it's a punishment, right? We've always asked, you know, why would God punish that, right? And so we said then, it's not a punishment, It does because that doesn't say punishment in the text. It, it's a consequence, right, of coming too close to nuclear material, you get Irradiated. It just is the consequence. And here it's supported in the text, as we're going to see, because the reason they died, according to this text, is because they drew too close. And it's not just that they drew too close. They drew too close without being properly defended against the nuclear material. Right? They, they, didn't, they brought an unprescribed offering, so they were not protected. They weren't wearing their gear. So it's a little scary, though, isn't it, that, that they died because they drew too close, and the instructions here are, tell Aaron to come on in <laughs> to the Holy of Holies, right? It's like, what? Like, so, and it's going to be very specific about what are the conditions under which he has to do it, and in a way that will keep him safe, right, from exactly what killed not Davin Abihu, his sons. All right, so with that introduction, let us look at 16.1. Someone begin. Adonai spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, who died when they drew too close to the presence of Adonai. Adonai said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come at will into the shrine behind the curtain. In front of the cover that is upon the ark, lest he die, for I appear in the cloud over the cover. Thus only shall Aaron enter the shrine with a bull of the herd for a purgation offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall be dressed in a sacral linen tunic with linen breeches next to his flesh and be girt with a linen sash and he shall wear a linen turban. They are sacral vestments. Vestments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And from the Israelite community, he shall take two he goats for a purgation offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Okay. So this is we're not. It's not specifying for us yet the time, but we all know when this is. This is Yom Kippur. Tell your brother Aaron who was the father of the two that got killed because they came too close, tell him that he's not to come any time he wants, b'chol eight, at any time or at all times, into the... El HaKodesh. Interesting. Kodesh. <laughs> right, so clearly it's a place... But, right, it doesn't say Kodesh Kedoshim here, right? Because I think there's a resonance with, tell him he can't come all the time into the holy, right? Not just, I think there's a resonance of not just place, but you can't come into nearness, proximity to that nuclear force just any time. 
right? And again, referencing what happened to Nadav and Avihu. You don't get to do it just any time. Not just not any time, but not all times. You can't sustain that. You can't always be in that holy... So if we go to if we go then following you, Laura Diamond, into the metaphoric interpretation, right? We can't be in the presence of intensified experience all the time. We just can't. All right. What does it refer to in terms of space? We have the Mishkan, yes? So outside is the what is this? It's a box. <laughs> Can't you tell by my drawing what this is, people? Unbelievable. The altar, the courtyard. Thank you. This is the altar, right? Here's the entrance past which Israelites do not go, right? Here is the, what is this? Yes, very good. Look at my Torah study class. Loving that. Clearly a labor. Clearly that's a labor. All right, so here is the laver with water in it so that the priest will come from dealing with the Israelites and taking all these offerings and slaughtering them, comes in and purifies himself before coming to the altar where the sacrifice will be offered, yes? Then you have the entrance to the actual structure of the Mishkan. Yes, of the tabernacle. There's a bunch of stuff in here. Where's the curtain? <laughs> here is the parochet. The parochet is the curtain. In what's in the what's in the holy? That's supposed to be a third of the Mishkan, by the way. This is a third. So, um, what's in the Holy of Holies. What's behind the parochet? The ark. The ark. <clears throat> right? And what covers the ark? The cloud? This cherubim. is a beaten metal gold, by the way. Gold leaf covered cover and on that cover are the Kruvim. The cover itself has a name. And we're going to see that. And on there are the Kruvim facing each other. Right? The cherubs. Not babies with wings and bows and arrows. The Kruvim would have been winged, scary, yeah, like stay away from the sancta if you don't belong here type of think the sphinx. Think they're not quite as scary as gargoyles with the same purpose. Fierce. Right? Yeah, fierce. 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 Very fierce. Like protective. Re- protective, right? The kind of, you know, if you don't belong here, it's going to go bad for you. Otherwise, they're just kind of awesome. If that's the case, why are they facing each other? Ha 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 ha. So. <laughs> Lots of midrash on why they are facing one another. Um, All right, so, um, but going to Bert's point, and this is, your question makes me realize what the point of them is. This space between the Kruvim, it is from that place that God speaks. Right? That, right? So, <laughs> already, I can see. Right? So, where do you think the rabbis go with that? From where does God speak? From among us. From the place where we turn and face one another. When we face one another and are truly in relationship with one another, it is from that place between us that God speaks. Beautiful midrash about why the Kruvim face each other and not out. First of all, nobody's going to see them. Who's gonna, nobody goes in there, except the Kohen Gadol. We're going to see under what conditions the Kohen Gadol goes in there. Um, There's always something between the two of them. It's a, the uh, Ten Commandments or something. Where the te- so if we have an image, let's say these are the Kruvim, and they are facing each other, right? 
The ark is underneath. The, what's in the ark, you are right, Reuben, is the tablets of the covenant, yes? This is understood to be God's footstool. God sits on the throne astride the Kruvim. At God's feet, metaphorically speaking, is the ark in the ancient world where would a king put the covenant between his conquering self and the conquered people's king, the vassal king? Where would that treaty go? Any guesses? In the footstool. In the king's footstool went the covenant between the conquering king and the vassal king. Yes? So where's the tablets of the covenant going to go? In the footstool of the king. Yes. It's, it's taking that metaphor of them facing each other two steps farther. As I recall, when all of the tribes are camped, they face each other. Mm-hmm. They face the Mishkan. But around it, so they're facing each other. So they face somebody. Right. Across face, the Mishkan. Right. When Jews pray, traditionally, we all face Jerusalem. But since we're all over the place, we're actually facing each other with Jerusalem in the middle. And in the service, you know, what the uh, vision, I always forget if it's Isaiah or Ezekiel, where the angels are saying, Kadosh, 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 they are facing, facing one, one another. another. Lovely. It's all over our literature, right? It's all over our choreography. And in our sanctuary. And in our sanctuary. We face one another. Ruth. Yes. So in all of these sensationalized movies like Raiders of the Lost Ark, they are searching for something that will give them ultimate power of the universe. Now, that's not the Torah, is it? They can't be. Chas v'shalom, you should suggest otherwise, Ruth. <laughs> of course the power is the force of the universe, right? So... So it's interesting because this, for me, borders on idolatry in that it gives the ark power. It is not the ark in our experience as a people ever. It was not the ark that had the power. What had the power was yod heh vav yod vav had the power. Not even what's in the ark. What's the supercharger that makes the ark untouchable Right? Remember when we have a story that somebody touched it and they died? What makes it untouchable is the force of godliness that is so concentrated in that spot that it, right, it makes it nuclear. It contaminates that space with supercharged energy that normal human beings cannot come too close to or we can't handle it. So the, the ark is supercharged by the force we call God. By, by the I shouldn't say that. God doesn't supercharge the, the ark, God forbid. The, the closeness, the intensification of that energy we call God, this is all mythologically speaking, um, that was in that spot, right? The arcs being around that all the time was the... It, it gets charged. It's the vessel. And, that, and the vessel's changed. We still believe this, yes? When I open myself in prayer, right, and, and I invite a more concentrated experience of the divine to work through me, You're the vessel. I'm the vessel and I am changed. This is a really important point for me around the whole issue of prayer. When people ask, how can progressive Jews pray? Right? It's because there's already a misinterpretation of prayer. I don't pray to change God. I pray to change me. I didn't get it till recently. Prayer is not well, about... I was sort of raised by Jewish atheists where it's like, well, we don't do the prayer part. We just do the tikkun alam, and that's what we do. But that's... This, this is just a, when I am a vessel... I am changed by what I carry or what I, as a portal, what I 
call and allow through me, yes? And so prayer for us is mostly about that essence that, that we concentrate in ourselves, that we invite in differently changes us. That's the point of prayer. So the issue is not, does God hear our prayers? It's do we hear our prayers? Do we bother? Well, and do we hear them, and then do we make our changes? Right. Exactly. All right. Do we listen? Yeah, that's... Shema Yisrael. That's, I think, the hardest. Shema Yisrael, why do you think it became the central three times a day thing you got to say? Shema Yisrael, it's not even about God. It's listen up, Israelites. Listen up, Jews, because we're not so good at listening. <laughs> right? We have to tell ourselves three times a day, listen up, pay attention to what's coming, because we, we don't, and it's fine that we don't. We have a cure for that. We say, Shema, attends, right? Listen, pay attention. Yeah. And within. Yeah. And within. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Tell your brother Aaron that he can't come in to the Kodesh, whatever he wants, in front of the cover that is upon the ark. So the parochet is the curtain. What color am I in? What is this called? The cover that's on the ark. What's it called? Our verse just told us. Kaporet. Huh. Huh. Kaporet. Huh. Sounds familiar. Doesn't it? Doesn't it sound familiar? Because we got a cough, we got a pay, and we got a race. And whenever we got that going on, what do we got going on? Yom Kippur. Or? Some kind of, okay, let's move from the language that we, that we use today. <laughs> go back to biblical language. So go, step back from atonement. Go back. Kiper. Kapara. Purgation. Good one. It's not, I mean, you know, it's, it's it, that's tahara. Right? So they're, they're all connected, 100%. But the key pair is about expiation. It's about It's about expiation. To make expiation for. I hear the sighs in the room. Um, these are the rituals that support once the... Once the person has asked forgiveness, once that work has been done, there has to be ritual finishing of the job, of expiation, of kapara, covering over. So question, am I wrong in remembering that the ancient practice of Spaying a chicken. Kaporet. Shepping and 100% the last remnant of kapara in this sense that we have. 100%. That's exactly what it is. You swing the chicken three times over the head of the person whose sins you are transferring onto the chicken, right? And then you break its neck. So this... This is, in Eastern Europe, this was what you did. And if you're still, I knew a family, a Sephardic family in Israel. Their children had gone to college. They were not coming in the States, were not coming home for Yom Kippur. And the, the father put the child's clothes out on the bed, right, and took money and, right, Shep Kippurus, that it all goes on the money, the money goes to tzedakah. But there was no way that family was moving into Yontif. No way without doing Kaporis, right? For that child. I remember when Reuben was talking about with the chickens over the head. Was it during the, uh, Rosh Hashanah? 
Yeah. And you said your family did with the chickens over the head? My father did that when we were very, very young, and I had no idea what he was doing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I might have been a toddler at the time. Wow. Wow. But it's memorable. It's memorable. They snap chicken and they snap it, right? Yeah. No, no, he, he skipped that part. So all of us who go, oi, oi. It's so funny to me that we go, oi, our grandmothers snap necks all the time. Are you kidding me? They snapped anything they were going to eat, and they plucked it themselves. They gutted it. They cleaned it. They did it themselves. See? I mean, it, we are so removed from it, right, that we kind of go, ah, like, you know, but they were not removed from the reality of if you were going to eat chicken, you had to kill it. Somebody had to kill it. I didn't do this because I don't remember that, but I remember that we prayed when it was time to slaughter the animal. We all prayed. You prayed what? What would you pray when it was time to slaughter? Before the slaughter would happen, we would pray and thank God for the man, the, the animal offering stuff for us. There you go. That's interesting. Yeah? Yeah. Ancient peoples understand this. People connected to still raising animals that you will eat understand this. We don't because we are so removed. I'm not saying I wish we all would go back to this. I'm saying we tend to judge it from a perspective of just being so removed that it makes no sense. Some of it isn't supposed to make sense, right? It doesn't need to make sense. And um, like my daughter was asking me something in bed last night about why... She goes, I know why babies love their mommies, but I don't understand why mommies love their babies. She says, because babies love their mommies more than anything. I said, no, actually, you're wrong. Mommies love their babies more than anything. And that is the strongest love on the planet is, you know, parents loving their babies. Sorry. And she said, but I don't understand. Like, it made no sense to her that she's dependent on me, that I do things for her. That love made sense to her. She goes, but we cost so much money, and, and you have to do so many things, and you have to feed us, and you have to help us with our homework, and you have to drive us, and we cost money, and so why would you love us so much? And it's like, go, go answer why. There's no why. There are some things that aren't about why, right? Be- because it's one of the greatest forces at work in the universe. You're my blood. You're my blood. No, that's not the answer. That is not the answer. That's not the answer. But see, I would argue different. I would argue that the kind of love you have for your child is unmatched. And you could have a line of two kids, one that's blood and one that's not. Somehow, that blood, when they are your blood and you've, you know, raised them and you're whatever, it releases a love. Adoptive mothers will argue with you 100% of the time. No, no, no. I said raise them. Yeah, but when you said blood and not blood, adoptive mothers are going to argue that is not the factor. I mean the hardship and the from the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. So all I'm arguing with is the language about blood. That's all I'm arguing. No, I'm. I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. I meant because because I always say to people like, honestly, you forget the birth, you forget the pregnancy. You don't forget. <laughs> <laughs> I, for me, I, I... I say to her, you, do you need to see the if, scar? If you do you need to see the scar? If you... You know what? If you didn't forget about it, why would you have a second? I don't have a second. Because <laughs> <laughs> it has its worth it. It's worth it. It's Not because you forget it. it. We won't have chicken brain. It doesn't matter whether you're... It doesn't matter whether your infant is handed to you by a nurse and came out of you or handed to you by an adoption agency. You're rearing it, you're feeding it, you're doing, you're sleepless nights, you're teething, you're... They're yours. Sure. So your daughter. So my daughter asks. So given all of that, why in the world would you love them? I know, but right? that, that's exactly the reason why. So okay. So we're just going to stop there. Um, Amy, some things. I just want to argue. Some things don't make sense. 
We don't love them because we did all that. I, I is my hypothesis. We do all that because we already, the minute they are ours and in our care, there is, like you said, something released and unleashed that is beyond reason, and we count on that. They wouldn't live if it made sense, and they wouldn't live if that weren't present already. And when we call on God as Av HaRachamim, Merciful Father, just a minute, Mickey. Merciful Father, what are we saying? Av HaRachamim, mercy. Rachamim comes from the root Rechem, womb. What we are saying is we are counting on there being a force in this universe that makes no sense. That the response of the universe is loving and generous and forgiving and compassionate. And compassionate in Hebrew means issue of the womb. The way you feel for the issue. Like you said, if it's handed to you, it doesn't matter. Once it's yours, once you have any kind of sense of linkage that way, that there is something released, something intensifies in us, and that it's in the universe, and it doesn't make sense. And we count on that every Yom Kippur. We do not stand at Yom Kippur and say, forgive us because we deserve it. Forgive us because we did a great job of teshuva. We did a great job of saying I'm sorry and doing repair. We count on their being the way the universe is put together, a real orientation towards you don't earn it. It's simply given it's there. It makes no sense. It's not about justice. It's not about fairness. It's not about equity because we would never survive that. Human beings would never survive equity. I mean, in terms of what we've earned, right? That, that we build in and count on this idea every single year. The rabbis say we should do it every day, right? Of accessing, truly accessing this force and making it real and alive in our communities so that we can start again, right? So, Because when you hit reset, you're filled with hope that we can start over, that we can do it differently, and that, that it's not supposed to, in that sense, make sense. It's about that force that we call God. Part of the godliness in the universe for us is rachamim, a response to us the way parents respond to their children. Um, okay. just, just to add one more thing mm-hmm. to that force, that whatever is released, when you think back to the mom and their cup, I mean, it's, it's don't get between an animal and their cup ever, and it's that same force. And Spencer, my older son, always says to me, like, he'll see me go into action on something. And he'll go, oh, man, step aside. Here comes the the she-mama. Here comes the she-mama, That's right. And that is the same kind of thing. That that releases itself. It doesn't matter if it's blood. It doesn't matter if that. Mm -hmm. It's because of everything you've just described. And sometimes that's not always positive. Oh, no, yeah, I know. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I know. Blanche? I'm so happy that we have the program, the midwife. On TV, it shows the depth of feeling that women have, and the depth of feeling that the nurses have. Everybody in the community is latched onto the idea this baby is going to survive, and it shows the forces against it. And it's such a good example of reality of what we can feel for even children that are not ours per se, but that when we are in that place of rachamim, of truly being compassionate, they are as if they were our own. And this is when people say, let a council of grandmothers make all the important decisions and you don't have any more wars. Like what grandmother is going to say, sure, send that, send that baby that's now 21 to kill that one. Oh, don't even, don't even. La, 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 la. I'd like to speak up for fathers. Speak up for fathers, Bert. This, this whole discussion. I have to share something because it's very special. Wait, 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 wait. Bert's talking. Because this whole discussion so far has centered around the tie between a mother and a mother and 
and, and child, which one can argue is biological, certainly more than the feeling of a father, but you have very much the same thing with fathers, although their way of protecting the, the young is different, but uh, do not get in between a father who's trying to protect his daughter. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Okay. okay. Speak so, about a force of nature. So the, this is Hang this on, model. This model doesn't just apply to mothers; oh, no, it applies to that. fathers. No, no, and no, then no. we project. Oh, we project that when we look at our father, capital F, mm -hmm. who has given us all birth, uh, given birth to all of us, and we say created us in our tradition. We, if you want, project or get on that father mm -hmm. these same kind of feelings. As you were saying, it's it, it's irrational. Why would I'm using metaphorically? Why would God love Jewish people? Why would God love everybody? Why would God love me when I am imperfect? And it's the same kind of a thing. Um, and it gets complicated when we do that projection on the side of then how could that loving force take my child? Right, you know, like so. This is right. where it gets very complicated when we project, when we anthropomorphize in that sense. It can be very liberating and warm and wonderful, and devastating when we can't come out of that right. personification mm -hmm. to respond to the fact that God doesn't control mm -hmm. everything. Okay, Mickey's so, been trying to talk. Um, I think I'm one of the oldest people here. Your children will never understand. That's right. That's right. That's what I tell her. You'll get it someday. That's right. I said, till your mommy, you won't understand. Richard? I was going to give my time to me. I need a question. Thank you, I also just want to tell you guys that there is this fabulous book called Fatherless Daughters. And... For, for a lot of reasons, it came into my world and I read it, but it speaks of exactly what you're saying, that there are, a, a, there's also the same thing on the other side. There are elements that complete a girl, that complete a woman, that she cannot get if she grows up in a home. That's father. I, are we really going to go here? No, I'm really? Just I know. I'm just saying. I know, but like, that is very important what a father gives a daughter. Hundred percent. It's important. Hundred percent. Very important what a mother gives a son, because there are things that the other parent cannot give the other. Correct. And we we. Right. So I'm, I'm not going to touch it. You can imagine. You can imagine. I'm not going to touch it. Yes. I had a teacher once in college who said, as long as a child knows truly it was loved, the child will be all right. Well, that's I think true. That kind of cuts through to all of that. Indeed. For the same reason you like Eliana to have, to be around David, to be around the boys, the same thing that you always say, you want her to have some influence. So I will, I will say one sentence. And that is that she will be missing, however much she's around David, she knows he's not her father, and she knows she doesn't have that. So for all that she's missing in that, I also feel it's really important that it is not because someone left, it's not because she was betrayed, mm -hmm. it's not because nobody wanted to be her father, It's be she knows from her origins that two parents, and it doesn't have to be two parents, in my case it just happens to be, mm -hmm. that two parents really wanted her, and some man was generous enough to help that happen, she grows up with a big hole in the sense of not having a father, but it doesn't come out of loss for her. It comes out of it's missing, and I believe that some of our biggest missing pieces become the determining factors in our lives and can be the most, most growthful pieces of our experience. So for me, that is certainly the case that I've chosen. As I always say to Rabbi Rubin, I am existentially kind of out there, and so that's the reason I'm a rabbi, because I need to be at the center of a big family. And he said, look, you could have joined a gang. <laughs> right? So, so our, it doesn't matter what, what motivates, you know, what, that often those holes, what's missing is what motivates right, a, a way forward that's really powerful and creates empathy uh, and compassion. So I don't want to say that things that are missing are always 
bad, I guess. Torah portion. Torah portion. <laughs> so this is my first time here. Mm-hmm. As you know, I really apologize. I'm, I'm late. Although I don't actually apologize because what you're speaking about just could not be more. I, I made this book yesterday. My dad's death is coming up 15 years. And I brought it in because I was going to see if there was a laminating machine because I was supposed to laminate it this morning. And I'm just looking at these photos, and it's just really interesting. So my boys who came to me were literally handed to me on a silver platter. They're, um, these are my two youngest, and they were born at 2, two 9 and 2, 12 by a surrogate from an egg donor with my husband's sperm. And he basically handed them to me on a silver platter, and then three and a half years later, I had my son, who is the birth child, uh, genetically related to both my husband and myself. And I couldn't love them any more than, you know, it doesn't matter to me where they, where they come from. But what's interesting, and, and I'm just curious to know where this, I'm sorry that I came in late, but, but my nieces, I was literally talking to my sister on the way here, my niece's father walked out on them when they were uh, four and six years old. And so they've grown up, so I'm, I don't know what their book's about. I'm like, oh my God, that's why I was here. Because they, they're like my kids. I, my, my one niece especially is like my daughter. And so I'm just curious, can, can you just back up a second mm-hmm. and just give me a little bit of context? Because all of this is so relevant, okay, and I just want a little bit of context. You can listen to the podcast. Uh, uh, seriously. If I was technologically... Because if I had to try to tell you how we got here, I'm not sure. I never know how we get here. This is not the lesson plan. Can I just tell you? All right, back to Torah study. All right, no, no more comments. We're going to verse... Oh, great. Verse 2. <laughs> Excellent. The second I half of verse 2. Discussion. No. No, it's oh, good. We needed no. to get back here. All right. No, no, it's all, it's all good. People are asking, can we go back to the text? All right. So, so, so Aaron can't come into the shrine behind the what? Behind the parochet. He can't come behind the parochet anytime he wants. In front of the... Kaporet. What's the kaporet? The covering of the ark. Why? For I appear in the cloud over the cover. So if we have the kaporet, we have the cover, we have the kruvim on on it. it, They are actually on it. They're welded like to it, right? So if God, if God appears in the cloud over the cover, that places the cloud between the kruvim. Yes? Mm -hmm. So as we've talked about, they're facing each other, and there's the cloud in which God appears. The question becomes, what is that cloud? What is the anan of the question? It's a question that the rabbis raise. Um, because it can be a couple of things. It can be the cloud that we associate with, right, when the Israelites were moving, were to move, the, the pillar of cloud would move. God appeared to them as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So is this the Anan of God's kavod, of God's concentrated presence? Is it always right in the shrine? Is it only in the shrine at certain times, or is this the cloud that is caused by, any guesses? Incense. incense. Is it wow. the incense cloud? <laughs> Our scholar, uh, Rabbi Sorna, says that's pushing it, right? That it's just pushing it that, 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 that Aaron's um, incense cloud would be the one from which... God speaks that most likely this is the kavod, right? This is God's concentrated essence. So only so Aaron will only enter the shrine with a bull of the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Who who is this sin offering for? Where are we? We are in verse two. What page? I don't know what page. I'm in a different copy of the text. It is for himself. The sin offering is for himself and his family. Tell me why you think I love that. Why do I love that? Because even the high priest can sin. 
You're in that position in a lot of ways. Oops, don't even go there. God forbid. <laughs> chalila, chalila, chalila. <laughs> um, so it, it, we say in Hebrew, lahavdil. Like we should make a serious distinction and differentiation, right? Lahavdil. But yeah, yes, and lahavdil. Humility in the high priest. So humil. So the, the the person who's going to affect the ritual of purification from sin brings the sin offering first for himself and his family. There is no part of our tradition that suggests the rabbis do later when they want to retroject onto the high priest how holy he was. The mystical tradition, you know, really sees the high priest as always in holiness and always pure of thought and always, right? But that's a complete, you know, putting, how do you say it when you put that on? When you project, retroject actually, you know, the image of the Rebbe onto Aaron, it is not here. Here, I love this, that the person who's going to most affect, you know, the purification of the sancta and the people's public space and the people themselves must bring his sin offering first because the assumption is that he has sinned. He and his family, of course they have. They're human. Right? How much have you got to love that? There is no infallibility in our tradition. None. There was no sense that the priest is any different than any other human being at all. So even as this idea gets carried forward, as we see it in Christianity, the, the priest has the power, at least in Catholicism, of um, transubstantiation, right? The power to turn the host or you know, a wafer into the host, the wine into blood, right? There, there's nothing of that. I want to be very clear here in our Tradition, nothing. I think it also helps the people, Israel, understand that they, I can be flawed because even Aaron's flawed. Yes. Right? So I can forgive myself because even Aaron has forgiven. Yes. Yes. They have to model it first. Before we can enter that process, you know, if I take your thing one step further, before we can truly enter that, like, we see it happen first. We know he's taking his bull for his family and the way they yell at each other. First. Before anything else, before I have to do anything, I watch that happen. So what a powerful thing. This is, by the way, a piece of our service, Bert Kleinman, that um, I miss about Yom Kippur, um, is that the traditional Hineni prayer is how the service leader begins Erev Yom Kippur, which, if you read the English, is all about, here I stand, unworthy, right? Because I have sinned. You know, and lest they think I am somehow better, you know, may no one be punished on my account, right? And so that's the way the service leader begins Erev Yom Kippur liturgically. And I feel like we've somehow lost something by the people, if you will, the congregation, not seeing or hearing a public confession by the service leader first before they're asked to participate in a public confession. And... We, we just have kind of lost something. Can we add that? I think yeah. we should talk to the religious practices <laughs> chair about looking at the yeah, liturgy. on the committee. Yeah. <laughs> when, well, sorry, um, the two people that got killed. Nadav and Avihu. The nuclear presence. Right. <laughs> okay. If, if the high priest or the rabbi has to enter the space by being vulnerable and saying, I have sinned, forgive me, before they walk in, did they not do that before they walked in? Who? So there's a couple of things. It, with Nadav and Avihu, it wasn't their um, lack. Uh, it wasn't about forgiveness or, or kapara in their case. They were bringing an extra offering that wasn't prescribed. So for them, they didn't have their protective gear on when they went into the nuclear chamber. Right, your your protection is that you've been told. Here's how you do it. Here's the offering. Here's the time. Here's how often. Here's what you put in it. Here's how you light it. Exactly how. That's what protects you. They did something outside of that. So they just went on in with their offering. So that meant they had no gear, and they were consumed by the energy. Back to the service, though. I really think that would be especially for younger kids, because I remember even as a teenager, 
think living next door to a rabbi who was very uh, imperfect <laughs> and seeing more things than I would ever want to see of somebody. But it made me just feel like, oh, he's wrong because we didn't have that concept or that wasn't woven in that concept that everybody makes mistakes, including a rabbi and this is, or whatever. Right, a public acknowledgement public. from the Bema of our fallibility. There's that another piece to that. When uh, God first speaks to Abraham, Abraham's answer is Hineni. Right. God says Abraham, and he says Hineni, here I am. Here I am. So it, 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 it also is a connection to God. And isn't Abraham, isn't it the same word Abraham uses from God? Of course, that's the yeah. only answer. Yeah. When God calls, the only appropriate answer is Hineni. Here I am. Are we talking here about this uh, Aaron is to offer his own bull for to make expiation for himself and his household. Yes. That was what yes. 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 That he brings a sin offering, but it's not in this case, which we would assume, it's not for the people. It's for him and his household first. So I want to show you, because I know we got to close, which I did not, I have to tell you, expect to spend this much time on two verses, which is fabulous. I love that. But I do want to show you, just so you know, um, self and one's family, then the community, right? You know, the people. Our, our um, liturgical tradition is that this is the service. We read this text as the Musaf service on Yom Kippur. So after... You know, you, you, after you have the regular service on a holiday, you have Musaf. You have an additional service, which is parallel to the additional offering that would have happened, right? There's a prayer service whenever there would have been an offering, a sacrifice, right? So three times a day in the temple, there was an offering. On holidays, there was an extra offering. So we have services three times a day, traditionally, um, and Musaf, an additional one on Shabbat and holidays. The Musaf service for Yom Kippur involves Avodah. A reading of the Avoda service of exactly what Aaron used to do on Yom Kippur. The drama, the high drama, which we didn't really get to all of it. This is seriously high drama. He changes his clothes, his costume, right, from the colored gold. How do y'all feel when the ark is open for the first time and you don't see colored covers? You see white covers, Right? There's something that happens for us around, right? He comes out of his gold and colored, you know, um, normal priestly garb, and he's completely in white linen. Simple, pure, white, unadorned linen. Is that why our bridal dresses are white? Comes from Same idea, purity. Purity. In our tradition, white is purity. So, not every tradition, but in ours. So he, um, so he... So he has this huge change in you know how he looks. There's this seriously high ritual that's going on. And so that is the service, the, the Avoda service. We don't do it as reconstructions. We don't spend the whole you know 45 minutes on the Avoda service. But look at your Machzor on page 858. You can share with each other. Or just look up at me. It's fine. So when you take the Kohan Ishama, when you take the Reconstructionist Machzor, if you are strong enough to lift it, <laughs> on page 857 and 858 begins a way of going into the Avoda service, which I really love. It's put into a confessional format. And the first confession um, of the Avoda service um, goes to the Mishnah and, you know, and other parts of the Talmud to enrich our Torah text. We don't have much here about what the priest said or certain parts of the ritual. The Mishnah fills it in. The Mishnah, the rabbis of the Mishnah are, are fantasizing, right? They miss the temple. Now, remember, these are the people who opposed the temple and its rituals and the corruption of the priests. Once the temple's destroyed... They are free to long and yearn and remember and fantasize about when it was and that it should be again, right? Um, so they studied very much the, the, the way the priests were to do this. And so our prayer book commission took the words of the 
Talmud and Mishnah and, a, and the liturgical tradition did it as well and added it in. So if you want a fuller accounting of what we just read, you can see here. For seven days preceding Yom Kippur, they set apart the high priest from his household. We don't have that here. Right? This is, it's missing from here. But if we trust the Mishnah, for seven days preceding Yom Kippur, they set apart the high priest from his household to reside amid the temple chambers while appointing to his place another priest to carry out his ordinary priestly duties. This was to protect him from all inadvertent acts or contact that might render him impure and thus invalidate him from performing the atonement ritual. So we get a much more intense experience of the high priest is isolated for seven days, presumably to do his own teshuva, to do his own repenting, and to stay protected from inadvertently sinning or inadvertently coming into contact with something that would render him unfit for service, God forbid. What if we took everybody involved in leading high holiday services and made them go to a hotel for a week? Like <laughs> now that I say that out loud, um, right? Like, wow! Like a, a real like. What if what if we were preparing that way for a week before, or all of us? What if we were pre- preparing? What if we stopped our regular duties for a week before Yom Kippur, and spent all that time preparing to enter the sanctuary, to ready ourselves as a community to do teshuva? what would it change about how that room felt when we walked in? I have to wonder. So um, so this is going to go through and tell you much more. Um, and it, it does it as a confession first for the self, then later as one for the community. Second confession for our people on page 893. The high priest would come into the east side of the court, north of the altar, To his right would stand his highest deputy, and to his left, the head of the officiating clan. Right? The president. (laughs) Right? And there were placed two goats, and there an urn, which held two lots. Here we get the the ritual form, you know, formula for what we see in our Torah portion about the goat for Azazel and the goat that will be the sin offering um, for the people. Cleansing, right? The space that has been made contaminated by the inadvertent sins of the people and we get we get we get ritual language here that we don't have in the Torah text which is also really to me powerful and really beautiful as the high priest in the past took upon himself responsibility both toward his household and his fellow priests so now are we the people Israel under obligation to assume responsibility for our mistakes Those that prevail in the society in which we live, we too today lift up our eyes to God on high on behalf of all of our kin, the house of Israel, wherever they may be. Would that each person might return to God, a turning both of body and of spirit as it is written. This is beautiful liturgical language for what does it mean to take seriously communal responsibility societally for our wrongdoings. Taking what was here, reconstructing it into a powerful understanding that this is not gone. This idea that we are communally responsible for contaminating what can be pure and holy, right? That that we both contaminate it and we have the power to do teshuva as a community and to cleanse that space and to start over, to start again. It is interesting, I'll close with, uh, it is interesting to me that we read this always. I mean, we're in our regular cycle of reading Torah. We're reading the Yom Kippur ritual when? Right before Pesach. Right before Pesach. Very interesting, right? That, that Always in the spring, always before Pesach, we're looking at the Avodah service. We're looking at the service of the high priest. Um, Why does it say in here that they, we should be doing it on the seventh month and the tenth day of the month? I mean, is that's not one we do. Yeah. It is? Yeah, so there were, I know, I know, this is good. This is why we come to our study. So um, <laughs> there were two understandings of when the calendar began in biblical Israel. And the first month of the year had been Nisan. Pesach was the new year. Everything's coming into being. Everything's being birthed. Makes total sense that springtime was the new year. 
there's right. There's also a tradition that's very old that it was in the fall. And in Babylonia, there was this huge, you know, coronation festival and stuff in the fall. But if the if the Tanakh is telling us it should be in the spring, why do we follow the one that's in the fall? History worked in such a way that the Babylonian tradition prevails because the temple was destroyed. Right? Um, there's probably other pressures that are, I don't know them all, that were brought to bear on the calendar. But for sure, what sealed the deal was that the temple was destroyed and the Jews from Babylonia were exposed to this huge coronation festival, recrowning the king, right? Accepting the king as the power, re enthroning the king in the fall. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Nah, right? All of the language of Rosh Hashanah, all of it comes right from that, a reconstructing of that idea. Of course, the radical innovation of the Israelites who had been exiled and were exposed to that was that they weren't crowning an earthly king, they were crowning God as king at Rosh Hashanah. But that's that coronation festival. Um, So it was the seventh month. Right. So wait. So wait. So what? What I want us to take from that, which I really love, is that therefore, if Rosh Hashanah, this day of blowing the horn, right, was not a big deal, if the New Year was in the spring, what's Yom Kippur tied to? What festival? Sukkot. Sukkot. Yom Kippur is originally not about the beginning of the year. Sukkot. Uh, Yom Kippur was tied to the last festival of the year. It was harvest. And then whatever you harvested kept you from starving over the winter. So you had the biggest blowout party imaginable. Rosh Hashanah, nothing. Nothing, right? The the day of the horn, whatever. (laughs) Right? That's all. Then you get... This big Yom Kippur followed by the blowout party. If you look at the description biblically of Sukkot, oh my God. The priests lit their old underwear on fire (laughs) in torches. Seriously. And they even went into the women's court. Even went into the women's court. Right? It was that big a party. And then, you know, like, but for you to be able to party like that, you needed to have cleaned up everything that was wrong. Then you can party. That was the original sense of Yom Kippur. Was you did this knowing there was an eight-day part. There was kachina, whatever it's called. What is it called? Coachella. Coachella. Oh, my God. Coachella. Burning Man was coming. And so you had to get rid of all of the yuckiness so that you could go into whatever it is, Coachella. Coachella, like free and feeling good. And you're supposed to start building your Sukkot, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the first thing you're supposed to do, right? So, so that, Ilana, is the original experience of Yom Kippur, which makes far more sense, right, in a way than how it is now, which is the beginning of the year, 10 days later, we do this, you know, I mean, it, it's fine. It's, it all works. But um, but I think originally it seemed to have a little more. It totes got changed. Totes. Rabbi, I'm, I'm missing where in this Parsha these um, rituals uh, refer to Yom Kippur. Uh, it's a little later. It says you will on the seventh in the seventh month on the tenth day of the month shall be a day of atonement for you. So later on. Yeah, it's here. Yeah. 1629. 30, 31. So it's having read that, that you know that this is... That it's tied to that, correct? Yeah. All right, so the words of the poet Ruth Brin of Blessed Memory. Atonement in spring. The earth turns, the seasons roll, the days lengthen now to warmth and spring. Yet the passage prescribed for us to read this day tells us to observe the day of atonement. The Torah speaks of Yom Kippur while the trees bud joyously outside our windows. Perhaps the Torah speaks now in the spring of atonement because we know so well our songs of joy carry with them 
the counterpoints of tragedy. Studying the ancient ways, we shall seek atonement. We shall seek unity with God, whose holiness is beyond our logic and our imagination. You, who are Lord of the deep rhythms of life, of sun and rain, of sin and forgiveness. You who are master of the ultimate mysteries, of your holiness, of our tragedy, and of our joy. We thank you, Lord, now and in the season of our repentance, that you have taught us atonement and offered us forgiveness. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.